Good morning. Good to see you here this morning. I'm glad that uh, you all um, were patient with us and adjusted. We didn't until um, last night this or yesterday afternoon. This parking lot was a sheet of ice um, that was going to remain a sheet of ice this morning, and we weren't sure if we'd even be able to have um, uh, in-person service this morning. Um, but thankful to um, both the city of Murfreesboro, um, some of our elders and deacons and members who came out yesterday, and in tandem with the bulldozers, um, were able to get this parking lot clear and uh, make a way um, for you all um, this morning to be here. Um, I know that many of you, um, especially some of you who are uh, maybe at home right now, we're really looking forward to two services with City Kids opening back up this week. Um, you know the old saying, Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Well, the creek rose this week, and so we were unable um, to have that this week. But it is in our plans, uh, many are the plans of men, but it's God who determines their steps. So we'll see. Um, our, our plans are for next Sunday to do what we plan to do this Sunday, which is open City Kids back up. We'll have two services at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. We are still going to wear masks. We are still going to ask you to RSVP during the week. So please do that. And thank you to those of you. Uh, thank you for all of you for, to adjusting to give us later time. Hopefully a little of the ice was able to melt in the parking lot and around and maybe in your street too um, on your way here. Um, appreciate so much. This, this entire season has been a difficult one to um, lead and make decisions. Um, many of your leaders, not just in the church, but wherever you are, um, but I know it's true for, for us here at this church, is we're in decision fatigue. And so it's so helpful when you are not sitting in the seat of scoffers going, well, they should have just done this or they should have just done that. Um, believe me, we weigh our options. We battle over this. And I know we let you know a little late. So thank you. Thank you to any of those of you who showed up at nine and maybe went and had breakfast and then came back at 10. And if you're watching online and you showed up at nine, we didn't get the message to you in time. Our apologies to you. Again, we hope to be back on schedule Two services, nine o'clock and 11 o'clock city kids wide open for you. Um, next week. If you have ever ignored, minimized, or deliberately hidden your sin, the text today from Joshua, though it is ancient and strange, is going to sound very familiar to you. If you are currently, like right now, in this moment, today, if you are currently ignoring minimizing or deliberately hiding your sin, then today, from this text in Scripture, you are going to be faced with a choice. Trust Jesus by confessing that sin and repenting with faith that he can save you from it, or self-deceptively raise your defenses, and not only to your own peril, but also causing shockwaves in those around you. Because sin never just hurts you. Do not figure out a way to shut your computer off right now. Do not figure out a way to go to the bathroom or to get out of here. I want you to know something. Ultimately, today is about hope. Today is an invitation to a turning point out of the darkness and into the light. So please hang on through this sermon. 
You are precious. You are deeply loved by God. He loves you as you are. At the same time, he loves you so much, he refuses to let you self-destruct in your sin without letting you know about it and a way out of it. I have absolutely no doubt today that he has you in this room or on this live stream or listening to this podcast because he wants to save you from yourself. I have no doubt that if you are in this room and you say, well, I can't really come up with any hidden sin that I have, that he's got you here or sitting in that car next to that person listening on the podcast on Tuesday or sitting on that couch next to you right there, that you are there because you are to be the people of God with the voice of Jesus representing as the body of Christ to this person what repentance and reconciliation and open arms look like. So please don't bail on this passage too early. Because we are going to plunge into the darkness and it is going to stink. But it's like going through a mountain tunnel. Things seem to get darker, but soon the light appears on the other end. And once you come out of the other side, you realize that the huge mountain that once impossibly stood in your way is now a pile of rocks in your rearview mirror getting smaller and smaller. And boy, is that a breath of fresh air. So turn on your headlights. Here comes the tunnel into Joshua chapter 7. If you've got a Bible, you can open there. If you don't and you're here in the room, you can take one. Um, I think on the live stream, if you're there, there's a little uh, tab you can click on for, uh, to read the Bible there. In the meantime, it will be on the screen. Joshua chapter 7, as we continue to make our way through the really easy to understand, simple to interpret, no problems here, book of Joshua is what I like to call it now. All right. The hits keep coming today. All right. The Israelites, however, were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. Achan, or as it should be pronounced, Achan, but I will not do that anymore. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of what was set apart, and the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. If you're a 90s basketball fan, you've got to love the fact that earlier, earlier we crossed over Jordan, and now we get the revenge of Ai. Okay, if you're not a 90s NBA fan, none of that matters to you, but it always speaks to me. All right, um, Back when the NBA was good. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which was near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and told them, go up and scout the land. Sound familiar so far? So the men went up and scouted Ai. He had a killer crossover. After returning to Joshua, they reported to him, don't send all the people, but send about 2,000 or 3,000 men to attack Ai, since the people of Ai are so few. Don't wear out all our people there. So about 3,000 men went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of them and chased them from outside the city gate to the quarries, striking them down on the descent. As a result, the people lost heart. So I just want to point out, because I'm not going to do this later, but I just want to point out, do you see a flip? If you've been with us through Joshua, you see a flip happening here. 
from Jericho, where it was the Canaanites that lost heart, their hearts melted away, but now it, 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 the, um, the Canaanites were overconfident in Jericho, and then their hearts melted, and now it is the Israelites who seem to have a sense of overconfidence about them, and it is their hearts that are melting away. So I just want to point that out as we get into the rhythm of Joshua that will probably come up again, if not today, later. So as we go, we want to point that out. Then verse six, Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening, as did the elders of Israel. They all put dust on their heads. Oh, which is an act of lament and mourning. Oh, Lord God, Joshua said, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites for our destruction? If only we had been content to remain on the other side of the Jordan. What can I say, Lord, now that Israel has turned its back and run from its enemies? When the Canaanites and all who live in the land hear about this, they will surround us and wipe out our name from the the earth. Then what will you do about your great name? Verse 10, then the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. Why have you fallen face down? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant that I appointed for them. They have taken some of what was set apart. They have stolen, deceived, and put those things in their own belongings. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They will turn their backs and run from their enemies because they have been set apart for destruction. I will no longer be with you unless you remove from among you what is set apart. Verse 13, go and consecrate the people. Tell them to consecrate themselves for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There are things that are set apart among you, Israel. You will not be able to stand against your enemies until you remove what has been set apart. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord selects is to come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord selects is to come forward family by family. The family the Lord selects is to come forward man by man. The one who is caught with the things set apart must be burned along with everything he has because he has violated the Lord's covenant and committed an outrage in Israel. And Joshua got up early the next morning. He had Israel come forward by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was selected. (coughs) He had the clans of Judah come forward, and the Zerahite clan was selected. He had the Zerahite clan come forward by heads of families, and Zabdi was selected. He then had Zabdi's family come forward, man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was selected. So Joshua said to Achan, my son, Give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and make a confession to him. I urge you, tell me what you have done. Don't hide anything from me. Achan replied to Joshua, it's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Babylon, five pounds of silver, and a bar of gold weighing a pound and a quarter. I coveted them, and I took them. You can see for yourself. They're concealed in the ground inside my tent with the silver under the cloak. So Joshua sent messengers who ran to the tent, and there was the cloak concealed in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from inside the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out in the Lord's presence. 
Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the cloak, the bar of gold, his son's daughters, his ox, donkey, sheep, his tent, all that he had, and brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought us trouble? Today the Lord will bring you trouble. So all Israel stoned them to death. They burned their bodies, threw stones on them, and raised over him a large pile of rocks that remains still today. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, that place is called the Valley of Achor still today. And that is the word of the Lord from Joshua 7. Today, I want to show you the nature of hidden sin, how we get into it, why it cost us so much, and how we get out of it. First, sin has a predictable pattern. Here it is. See, weigh, crave, take, bury. Sea wave, crave, take, bury. Not wave, way. I was a sea wave. I was in two sermons ago, right? Sea way, crave, take, bury. When we read through, or when we read through Joshua chapter 6 um, a couple of weeks ago, I pointed something out to you about this idea of seeing. Um, Remember, Joshua and the Israelites were facing this fortified city of Jericho, not feeling very good about their chances of getting in and winning the battle. And God, at the end of Joshua chapter 5, God meets with Joshua. And in chapter 6, he says, hey, are you with me? Are you going to listen to me? Follow me. Are you going to believe my promises about this land I've given you, even as this fortified city stands in front of you? And the very first command that he gives to Israel is to look, is to see. Look in Joshua 6.2. The point was, there is something I am doing, God is saying, that does not appear to be happening. But it is. And I want you to lift your eyes to have a, remember we talked about a holy imagination. The one where you can picture the shore that I am calling you and equipping you to swim to. The battle is won. I've given them, I've given its king and its best soldiers over to you. I have already done the work. So even though it may appear that the battle is still ahead of you, I need you to have a holy imagination and see what I am declaring as already done by me. Will you believe it and trust me? Okay, so that's the kind of scene, a holy imagination. Can you picture this victory that I'm telling you you already have? Seeing, holy imagination, seeing what God has promised before it happens. All right, now, look at verse 21 in chapter 7. When Achan describes this sin, so this, we're going to start at the end today. When Achan describes this sin that ends up killing him in his confession, and it also causes the loss of lives in this battle, at least 36 other Israelites, including, or not including, his, his, the lives of his family, He starts his confession with the same verb that's in chapter 6. Behold, see, look. I saw. What happened? I saw among the spoils. This is the opposite of what Israel was called to in Joshua chapter 6. This is unholy imagination. It means to move something to the center of your gaze. 
It means to take it and behold it, something that is not of God. It works the same way the holy imagination does, just in reverse. With a holy imagination, in the darkness of your circumstances, you place the brightness of the promise of God ahead of you, where he's taking you and who he's called to be. In this, they're actually in a bright situation. They've just won the battle of Jericho, but the darkness reappears. The, the, the mind does not go to where God is seated, or uh, Colossians 3, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, it comes down to circumstances. He doesn't see the unseen. He only sees the seen, and he gets right in front of him this thing that is attractive to him. An unholy imagination, the center of your gaze, gets captivated by something lesser than God. Not necessarily evil. Like our bars of, uh, you know, bars of gold and silver and, you know, a neat Babylonian cloak. Are these things evil in and of themselves? No. Who doesn't love a good Babylonian cloak? No, they're just not God. They make terrible gods. Your maker, the one who loves you and made you to know him, wants to be the center of your gaze. For Achan, or with an unholy imagination, the center of your gaze gets captivated by something lesser. Now for Achan, it was silver and gold and fashion. A stunning Babylonian cloak, the talk of the season. Now for you, it could be something similar. Money, a standard of living that allows you to participate in the finer things. You know, an Instagram-worthy life. You know, you put on the big hat and you take a selfie. Not necessarily wrong things. Your gaze just moves off of God and on to something lesser. It could be a career. Something that promises your advancement in life. Could be a family, something that you think you need to be satisfied. Could be a following on social media. Could be a one person's special attention. Sin always starts with noticing something other than the God who loves you and wants you to keep eye contact with him. And you know, it's what marketers do so well. There is no hope of you buying something without first getting a vision for it, knowing that it exists. In fact, that is the way that marketing has evolved over the years. It used to be just, here's this thing everybody knows you need, and here's what it does. You decide if you need it. Now it's the thing you didn't know existed five minutes ago has moved to the center of everything you have to have as a human being, you know? You're like, you didn't even know that game existed five minutes ago. It just got released. You, didn't, you know, why, why are you sacrificing all these relationships of, that we're going to hang out with these friends, now you've got to go see this movie? Why? You didn't even know it was a thing five minutes ago. So many products we buy aren't because we need them. But, you know, with analytics, those products are put before your eyes and suddenly you get a vision for them because you see them. Aiken saw. Then look what's next. He doesn't just look at the objects and look away. Next, he weighs them. He weighs them. He does some quick accounting. 
Ooh, a Babylonian cloak. That is all the rage this season. That would look so good with my riding boots. And look, five pounds of silver, or some of your translations say 200 shekels, a pound and a quarter or 50 shekels of gold. Listen to me. You don't, you don't look into the spoils and see a pile of shekels of gold and know that there's 50. You've got to count those bad boys. You don't estimate 200. You've got you to scrooge that bit. You know what I'm talking about? Count them out one by one. How did he know that cloak was Babylonian? Maybe he went up and felt it. This is the stage of sin where, look out church, we start to get creative. What could, we start to make up stories, what could this stuff get me? Where could I get with a Babylonian cloak, sounds like a joke, a Babylonian cloak, 200 shekels of silver, 50 shekels of gold, walk into a bar, right? Now, you, you start, but we start to put it all together. Where could this get me? What if I, what if I had that? How far could I go if I just cut this ethical corner? Does anybody really care about this? Think about the way that woman could love me better than my wife loves me. Well, this coworker treats me so much better than my husband. Imagine if he was my husband. Oh, how my life would be so much better. This is where seeing turns into a story. You start to weigh. How heavy is this? What could this get me? It's a story about how much greener the grass would be if you could just hold and have the things that you have seen. How good would it feel? How safe would you be? How beautiful would it make you? How sure some people, you know, might think it's bad. But in the end, I'll be happy with this thing, this person, because this is what 200 shekels of silver and a Babylonian cloak could get me. You can't expect me to pass that up. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Here it is, right in front of me. I'm weighing it. And that's where the justification starts. The reason why the affair is fine. You tell yourself and others why what appears to be sin is actually good. You weigh it. This is how much I can get from having this. This is how much I can feel it. This is how much I can get from doing this. You know, that's what the word glory means. Did you hear what um, Joshua says to Achan? He says, give God glory. You know what that means? Glory means weight. Give God weight. You, you weighed this stuff, pound and a half of gold, give God weight. Put a holy imagination. What would life be like if you gave him the proper weight? What would it be like if the one who is the creator of everything was the center of your universe? How heavy, how important. That's what glory is. How heavy, how important is something to you? If you've ever been in this position with your sin, you know what I'm talking about. When you weigh something... When it starts to feel heavy to you, nothing else seems important. Everything else shrink. Even people you love, friends, family, church, responsibilities, they all start to shrink and become weightless as the thing on which you have locked your gaze is the heaviest, most important thing in your life. And you know, it, it starts to take control of your pocketbook. It starts to take control of your debit card. It starts to take control of your schedule. All of a sudden, you're telling people, 
Well, yeah, I, I can't make it this week because I got this thing, and there's always a list of justifications why that thing is weightier than, say, your church family. You are giving all the glory and power forever and ever, amen, to whatever you have weighed that has made this promise to you of what your life will be like if you have it. It has become your God, your salvation, your precious, your glory. Look at verse 21. Next thing Achan says happened was that he coveted them. Covet is another word for crave. It means, okay, you've, you've seen it. Ooh, you've weighed it. You've worked the story out. Man, this stuff is really important. I really need to have this. Now you, now you crave it. Give it to me now. Nothing is going to stop me from getting what I have seen and what I've moved to the center of my life as the heaviest thing. I must have my glory. And now I'll make a plan to get it. This is where the imagination of what if I had that turns into a plan of this is how I'll get it. And then finally, the last step, or the next to last step, he takes them. He takes them. Oddly, though, and, and note, Achan knows what the consequence is. Achan is not taken surprise. That's why when they say they're going to stone him, it's not, oh, no, you didn't tell me about No, Achan knows what the consequence. God has declared, has been declared to the community. And that's the insanity of seeing and weighing and craving and coveting is even though you know the consequences, you are driven to move that thing to the center of your life and to have it. But look at the last step. Oddly, even though he's told himself all these stories, just like we do with sin, tell ourselves all these stories about how if I could just have this thing, it will free me. The last step is you bury them. That's what he does. He buries them. He hides them. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Why not flaunt the Babylonian cloak? Because he knows that if somebody sees him with this Babylonian cloak or all that gold and silver, they will know he will be outed. He took something that God commanded them not to take. So what he thinks will free him, he imprisons that thing as it imprisons him. He buries it. And in this touch of irony, the stuff that was supposed to have some wonderful effect on Achan's life to add beauty or security or praise just ends up being buried in the dirt and nobody knows that he has it. And it just causes him angst and anxiety, wondering, will, when will I be found out? Is anybody in here or on there, is anybody thinking that right now? What's the thing? When I, if somebody walks up to you and says, I know a secret about you, do you live in the freedom of, I don't have any secrets? Or do you admit, what's the thing that comes to mind? Oh, God, please. God knows that secret. I told you this was dark. All of the promises of the story that Achan told himself when he weighed these items, all of the craving that he thought would be satisfied when he finally took the things, none of it panned out. He didn't spend a shekel he never got to go to the coffee shop with his Babylonian cloak to match his riding boots and his wide brim hat. He never took an Instagram picture with it. It just was buried in a tent. What a waste. In fact, his life got worse 
And so were the lives of all Israel. We'll get to that in just a minute. I called this a pattern with sin, see, uh, uh, with see, way, crave, take, bury, not just because we've all experienced this and this is kind of our life experience, but biblically, the pattern is set with the very first sin. In the book of Genesis, chapter 3, a serpent, like a good marketer, draws the attention of the woman in the Garden of Eden to the one fruit that she couldn't have. Five minutes ago, she wasn't thinking about that fruit at all. She had the whole garden. But the serpent, the chief marketer, the father of lies, comes in and says, have you seen this fruit yet? Five minutes ago, she was paying no attention to it, but he markets it to her as the thing that will change her life. Make her God, even though God had already made her in his image. So let's go to Genesis 3, 6, and 7, because I just want to see you start. And by the way, you're going to see this pattern, especially you make your way through the Old Testament. It comes up in the New Testament again. You're going to see this pattern. See and take, mainly a see and take. But in, in, you'll have those steps in between, weighing and coveting, taking and bearing. Okay, so this is all through. So I'm just going to show the start of it, the kickoff. Genesis 3, 6, and 7. The woman saw, there it is, she sees the fruit, that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. You know what that is? That's weighing. Ah, I see. Now she thinks it through. Ooh, that would be tasty. And, you know, I could flaunt it like a Babylonian cloak. It's delightful to look at. I would look great naked holding this fruit around, you know. Adam would love me more. Isn't that crazy? And that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Now she craves it because the story that is now there, she's convinced that's true. The story that the chief marketer told her. Take it and you'll be like God. Oh, yeah, I'll obtain wisdom. So what does she do? Here's take She took some of its fruit, and she ate it. There's the taking. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them, look at the scene now. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. That's it. That's the burial. Finally, they hide in shame. They are burying themselves from God's side. You see, the pattern starts in Genesis 3, and it just keeps going. Shows up here again in Joshua. It shows up multiple times in the Old and New Testament. You can watch for it now. We have a Bible reading tool for you. Watch for see and take when it's related to sin in Scripture. It's been the same old, tired story from the beginning. The father of lies tries to make us his children by promising that the latest and greatest flashy thing, be it money, a divorce, an affair, a new church, a new boyfriend or girlfriend, better high-paying job, new phone, new car, new house, new child, will make us new. Whatever the thing is that we don't have yet, we will finally have our cravings satisfied if we will just destroy everyone around us, put everything else to the side, especially God, and go after that thing. But it always leaves us buried. And did you notice in that verse from Genesis 3 that sin there spreads to those we love Eve shared with Adam, and Achan shared the deadly effects of his sin with his family and his whole community. Thirty-six of them ended up buried. See, when we bury sin, it buries us and sometimes those we love. This passage seems unfair a little bit, doesn't it? Anybody read this and think, that's not fair. 
In fact, the more familiar passage in Genesis 3 often seems even more unfair than this. What's the big deal, God? Eve took some fruit. So what? You're God. Can't you just forgive that? Why is it such a big deal? Achan took a little gold, silver, and a fabulous Babylonian cloak. Why does God freak out about this stuff? Isn't he overreacting? Now, I'm not going to take the time to fully develop this here, but the simple answer has to do what is underneath our sin. It's what we glorify. It's what holds the deepest weight in our life. See, this is, as Joshua has been all up to this point, about holiness. God's beautiful otherness, better than us, different than us. And so, what's so easy for us to forget, especially in a low church environment, that's what we have here. We have a low church environment, like wear what you want to. Like It's not, you know, there's nobody walking down the aisle with a thing to smell, ringing a bell. You know, the ceiling's dripping here. We meet in a warehouse. There's no stained glass windows. We got stains, but they ain't glass windows. Amen. Okay, like... Um, it, we, you know, we have this low church environment, come as you are. And we, in fact, some of you may have pushed against sort of a high church environment because you're like, oh man, y'all stuffy and wah, wah. And we have worked in some liturgy and we're saying the Apostles' Creed and we are doing some things that press us into what we might be uncomfortable with. You came from Southern evangelicalism. Yes, 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 and yes. However, what ha- and there's great things about low church, like come as you are, I'm all for it. But sometimes we forget the holiness of God in it. Sometimes we forget the beautiful otherness. Sometimes you sit in a plastic chair on an old concrete floor, and we just forget that God's not just our buddy. We, you know, like that old Joan Osborne song. What if God was one of us? What if God was one of us? Nobody, it's from the 90s. Three people know that song. You know? Get cultured. Um, we just, we lose some of the holiness of God and these passages offend us so much because we just think of God as another guy that we're buddies with. And you can't do that to somebody. But at the center of this is holiness. Let me try to show you this, okay? It, it, it takes some time sort of marinating in the scripture to even get your senses attuned to this because we are so, in our, in our whole culture, we so push away from the sacred. God created us in all of his holiness and beauty. God created us to be with him, which is a miracle, a miracle set apart for an intimate relationship with him. In order to maintain that intimacy in a relationship, just like in any relationship, we have to be open, vulnerable, and honest. No relationships work without openness, honesty, and vulnerability. They don't. You wall off. And the less open, honest, and vulnerable you are, the further away someone is, like in the land of acquaintance, you know, put in the friend zone, you know what I'm talking about? Like, you don't share everything with the lady that checks you out from Target, typically. Why? Because you know what that relationship is. You're like, this is not a relationship that I'm trying to continue. Like, this is a transactional thing. But in the relationships of the people who are closest to us, we got to be open, honest, and vulnerable. And so if that's what the holy God of the universe wants... Open, honesty, vulnerability. Sin, by nature of making something more important than God, violates that intimacy. That's why we try and hide our sin and our sinful selves from God. Because on one hand, we all, because we are created in the image of God for 
a relationship with God. All of us, every human being wants this transcendent connection with the divine that we are created for. On the other hand, our seeing and weighing and craving of things not God have us battling with this other story of what we think life is really about and what will really satisfy. So we feel torn all the time. And you know what we do? We try to hold on to both of them. We try to hold on to the divine and that transcendent pull. I've got to have something bigger than me outside of me. At the same time, we're making something else more important than God or as important as God. And Jesus, you know, he called that out. He calls that out in the New Testament and he says, you can't what? Serve two masters. You'll just end up hating one of them and loving the other. Listen to how relational that is. You'll end up hating one of them and loving the other. You cannot serve, he says, God and money. One of them has to go. When we bury our sin, we are not being intimate and open with a holy God who created us for relationship. Yet we are, it's really quite silly, we are trying to keep the all-seeing God from seeing us, from seeing our other lover. This is marital talk. That's exactly the kind of language that God uses. Look in Joshua 7.1. God's anger, he says, burns against Israel because the people that he has set apart to be his collective bride are what? Cheating on him. They were unfaithful. That's covenant marital language. They are unfaithful. They are serving two masters. It's adultery language which is the most common metaphor for sin used in all of Scripture. God's people, by the way, just a little aside, this is why we take every one of you, if you, if you get married here, we take you through premarital counseling because we're trying to get you out of the this marriage is about me and fulfilling my happiness. That's making marriage your God and into, no, this displays something about God's marriage to his people, okay? This is like all through Scripture. It's not like one or two passages. Like this is a theme. It's adultery language. God's people collectively as his bride cheating on him. A people set apart for intimacy with God, hiding their lover in the closet or under the bed, burying them. Look at verse 11. God says, they have violated a covenant. They have broken a marital promise. And note, it is a sin that spreads out to all of Israel. God talks about Israel as a collective people, even though he's zoning in on one guy's sin. What's the deal? This is the part that we Westerners have such trouble with. The idea, we think, we have this idea that sin is only ever individual. While it is, listen to me, while it is absolutely true that we are held accountable for our individual sin, sin also has a corporate effect. In Christian doctrine, it's known as original sin. Through the sin of Adam and Eve, you and I are born into sin. We are born into a broken system where we are bound to chase after other lovers that are not God. And yet, at the same time, we are all still held responsible for following that instinct to our own demise. Individual sin, corporate sin. Not only that, not only that, anyone that you put yourself in relationship with, the closer the relationship, the more you're going to feel the death that comes from their hidden sin. If you're married and your spouse cheats on you, even though you didn't commit the sin, its effect will spread to you. 
At the very least, you will feel the pain of that infidelity. But you could also experience the loss of money that they spend from your joint bank account on that other lover. You didn't spend that money, but you're connected to that person who spent that money, and it's your money. And they just spend it on another lover. You will feel the wrath of the other spouse when she throws a brick through your window of the house that you share, and that will cost you. It'll cost you your safety. You're going to blow us up. In our communities, we all feel and experience the death that comes through. This may sound silly, but just as an illustration, through littering. Like regardless of whether or not you have ever thrown any trash out your window, you will feel the financial effects, the emotional effects of prescription drug abuse when you have never actually abused prescription drugs. Insurance rates will go up in your community. Trust is broken between the medical community and the people. When you actually need a painkiller, you may not be able to access it because of restrictions that come. It's just part of living life. Sin has a corporate effect. It is never only individual. The children of divorce did not do anything to deserve that, yet some parents' sin still comes to visit and haunt them many times into adulthood. And no, just because you have a divorce in your past does not mean you're condemned. Don't hear me say what I am not saying. What I'm saying is divorce does have a root in sin. Somebody's has sinned. And it affects when that relationship is broken up and torn apart. It will affect the children. I could go on and on and on and on. You have lived this. I know you have. You know this is the nature of sin. It's death and pain spread like gangrene. And ultimately, those who are closest to us, like Aiken's family, They die with us. We take them down. Was Achan's family helping him to conceal this stuff? Maybe. I don't know. The text doesn't say. But even if not, what we have here is a physical representation of a spiritual reality. God takes sin very seriously among his people because it is a death sentence. It separates us from God as it unites us to false gods that not only don't satisfy, they kill Sin is not a toy to be played with. It kills, devastates. What you bury to hide from God will end up burying you and no telling how many people that you love. Now the light, City Church, the way out. Jesus is offering a better pattern. See, weigh, crave, repent, resurrect. Let's do this one. We'll do it with you. Let's do it together. Nobody's immune. Everybody needs this. Me included. At the end of chapter 7, Achan is buried under a pile of stones. And as he receives the death that was promised that would come if Israel took the things that were devoted to destruction, God told them, that they themselves would be destroyed if they did this. Achan knows this. And this is not, you'll remember, the first time we've seen a pile of rocks in the book of Joshua. Remember in chapter 4, God told Joshua after Israel crossed over the Jordan to set up a pile of 12 stones at Gilgal to commemorate what God had done on their behalf. So I'm going to read that as a refresher, Joshua 4.20. Then Joshua set up in Gilgal the 12 stones... They had taken from the Jordan. And he said to the Israelites, in the future, when your children ask their fathers, 
What is the meaning of these stones? You should tell your children, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the water of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over just as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. This is so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is strong so that you always may fear the Lord your God. That's the first pile of rocks in Joshua. By the time we get to the end of chapter 7, we have two piles of rocks in Joshua. The one from chapter 4 that will pass on the story of God's faithfulness to rescue his people and deliver them to the promised land. Every time the kids ask, what happened here? God intervened. God intervened. God intervened. A pile of rocks that will remind generations to come that the Lord's hand is strong and will have them fearing or placing the correct weight on God's holiness. A pile of rocks that will allow them to see to have a holy imagination of what God does to insurmountable obstacles in the way of his people. That's what the first pile of rocks said. It will put a craving in them for his closeness and his presence to receive what he has for them. That's what the first pile of rocks does. That place was called Gilgal, which means to roll away reproach. Can nobody touch you, Israel? Joshua 7, 26, the second pile of rocks becomes a reminder of what happens when our glory gets misplaced. When we see, weigh, crave, take, and bury. It's a reminder that God does not take our sin lightly, but he loves us and hates to see us destroy ourselves. And we'll do whatever necessary to cut out the cancer so that his bride can live. And note, the valley is called Achor. It's a play on the name Achan. And it means the valley of trouble. Uh Uh-oh. The valley of trouble. What a monument. What an anti-legacy. What a thing that you don't want to leave for your kids. Daddy, what happened here? Achan took the things devoted for the Lord. 36 people plus his family died because of his selfishness. That's what happened here. Achan dies, and there's a pile of rocks, and the name, the Valley of Trouble, that's what he leaves his community to remember him by. That's dark. But with God, burials are not the end. For the dead in Christ shall rise. There's a new covenant, a new marriage. There's something better than the law. Hosea, the prophet, foreshadows this. In fact, remember who Hosea is? Hosea was a prophet who was told to go feel God's pain of an unfaithful spouse and do it in the flesh. He was told to marry a prostitute, a woman who would be unfaithful to him and to have children with her, to experience the pain that God feels when we, his people, are unfaithful to him. Now, listen to what God says through Hosea in Hosea 2, verses 13 through 20. Remember where we've been with Achan. Here we go. First the dark, then the light. Here's the dark. And I will punish her, Israel, for the days of the Baals, that's um, false gods, to which she burned incense. And she put on her rings and her jewelry. Sound like Achan, anybody? 
and followed her lovers, but she forgot me. This is the Lord's declaration. But watch the shift in language here. Not just the very next verse. Not punishment anymore, but compassion. Therefore, I'm going to persuade her. I'm going to lead her to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Speak tenderly to an unfaithful spouse. There I will give her vineyards back to her. Does she deserve it? No. Look at verse 13. But God gives the vineyards back to her and make the valley of Achor into a gateway of hope. The valley of trouble is transformed into the door of hope. There, she will respond as she did. In the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of the land of Egypt. This is God's story with Israel. This is God being tender to his bride. This is God saying, remember the good times? Remember when we first when I brought you out of Egypt? Remember when I first made that covenant proposal to you? Remember how good things were? Let's go back by moving forward. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration, you will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. You let go of the other master, the other God. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. They will no longer be remembered by their names. On that day, I will make a covenant for them with the wild animals, the birds of the sky, and the creatures that crawl on the ground. In other words, back to creation, back to Genesis 1 and 2 instead of Genesis 3. I will shatter both sword and weapons of war in the land and will enable the people to rest securely. I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness. What? A prostitute, an adulteress, righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will intimately attach to know the Lord. And y'all thought the Old Testament was all wrath. Come on, man, get on that. Like, roll that up and smoke it. My gosh. You looking for a high? Read what God just said to his unfaithful people. The question is how? How does it change? Why aren't we stoned like Achan for the sin that we bury? It's because we're giving something new to see, City Church. Colossians 3.1, lift your eyes to the heavens where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You're, You're given something to see, a holy imagination. Jesus, God in the flesh, crucified and resurrected, is lifted up. And in the face of Jesus, we know God. We are attached to God. We are intimate with God. We see his worth, a God who forgives, a God who transforms trouble into hope, a God that we aren't just commanded to be in a relationship with, but whose love is actually attractive to us. We get that in Jesus. And because of God's love and compassion, we crave him like a deer pants for the water. So my soul longs after you, wrote the psalmist. Even though I don't know what deer pants look like. Are they all four legs or just the bottom? (laughs) I can't say deer pants without thinking that. 
Now look at Joshua 7.23. Look what we do now. We dig up our buried sin. We confess it. When we see Jesus Christ crucified, we lay our buried sin before God. We spread them out in the Lord's presence. Because in the valley of trouble, in the valley of the shadow of death, who's there? The good shepherd. We are unafraid, ready to give up the false gods we have served and come back to the God who we have so deeply hurt with our infidelity because of Jesus. Now, when you lay your sin before the Lord, you don't die. Jesus, like Achan, was from the tribe of Judah. Jesus, like Achan, was singled out for death on a cross so the rest could live with God. But unlike Achan, Jesus was innocent. Righteous. If you think it's unfair to feel the effects of someone else's sin, wait to see how glorious it is to feel the effects of someone else's righteousness. My God, I'll take the first if you give me the second with it. If Adam and Eve started my sin, then I also get to have Jesus who started and completes my righteousness. In Jesus, we are raised to newness of life. Yes, in the life to come, literally when our buried bodies come out of the ground to spend eternity with him, but also now as you confess your sin to God and to those that your buried sin has affected, you experience the resurrection of relationships, the ones that you have walled off trying to hide that sin, the friends and family and church family who have become nothing more than a target employee. Maybe, the, maybe you run from in the target aisles. With God, with his people, with those that you pushed away when you were consumed with idols, you get reconciliation. And like a loving father, God and his family are waiting with open arms to welcome you home. He even calls his unfaithful bride faithful and he speaks tenderly to her. And that's the grace of what he's doing to you today. Do not forsake it. Do not run away from it. It will not always be available. Death is at your door. Your life is a vapor and you will give an account before God for everything, City Church, everything, whoever you are, that you have buried, everything, Trevor, that you have buried and hidden will be exposed, laid bare. Jesus is your only hope. Today is the day of salvation. Will you bow your heads? I want to give you an opportunity wherever you are, at home, on your couch, listening to a podcast here in the room with me. I want to give you the opportunity now that God has intersected your path and spoken clearly to you by his Holy Spirit and through his word. Today, I want to give you the opportunity to turn to him, to start a new pattern in your life of seeing his worth, giving him the glory repenting, confessing. And now you don't have to fear the stones of God being thrown at you or the stones of this community. You don't have to fear that anymore because Jesus has taken that hit for you. And so right now, here's what I'd like you to do. Confess to God. He already sees that buried sin 
will you just say, you're right, God. I have cheated on you. And now I want you to picture Jesus Christ hanging on the cross because this is God's message to you. This is the gospel. This is the good news. All the stones that should have been directed at me, at you, were directed at Jesus in the form of three nails on two wooden beams. See something new. Uncover your sin and look at it. Put on Jesus right now. The son of righteousness with a crown of thorns, bleeding, dying. Because God sees you and loves you. here with the thief. It wasn't Achan, but there was a thief on the cross next to Jesus. And upon seeing Christ die for a crime that he didn't commit and confessing his own crimes, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today is the day of salvation for you. If you see your sin on Jesus and you believe it's there, And now the step of faith for you as you move forward is twofold. Number one, it's to confess that publicly. And that means baptism. We have a link on our app. Don't be like, oh, I'm afraid of a public spectacle. Jesus was a public spectacle for you. So will you be baptized as representing what Christ did for you? You can just go to our app. There's a link on there to sign up for baptism. The second thing is this. Will you take the possibly even harder step of looking the people that your sin has hurt in the eye and confessing to them? Will you confess it to your church? You can start elders at BurrowCityChurch.com. One of our pastors will sit down with you. We'd love to help you take steps. We're here with open arms. Will you confess it to your family? Will you confess it to your boss, your coworkers? Your sin has hurt them. You need to be open about how good Jesus has been to you. That's your steps. Could not make it any clearer. You can look up at me. Now we're going to take the physical, receive the physical reminder. Hopefully you got some of those cups when you came in. I didn't. Will someone toss me one? You're going to get... When Jesus... Alert me first before you throw it. Uh, Perfect. They would have put me in the fourth quarter. We could have won state. Um, Jesus, the night before he died, sat with his disciples. All of whom he saw all the way to their core, all the way to the denial that was about to happen. Listen, people, even Judas. Jesus says this too. He says, this is my body. He took the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. Sin breaks. Jesus was broken for us. Take and eat. He said, this is the cup 
of the new covenant, the one that Amos told you about and Jeremiah told you about and Isaiah told you about, the one that Amos told you about, This is the cup of the new covenant. The one that changes us from people on the receiving end of stones to people who get a pile of stones that's a remembrance of God's faithfulness to us. And he says, I'll drink this cup again with you in the new heavens and new earth when I come again to make good on my promise. Have a holy imagination as you taste the grapes. Heavenly Father, We're all in this together. We as City Church are a covenant community. We're not, a, we're not just atomized individuals. And that means our sin hurts one another. But it also means our grace, our gratitude, our faith can be infectious too. And so right now, Father, by the grace you give us in the presence of your Holy Spirit, all through this week, and all through the uncertainties of this upcoming season. Make yourself shine through us. Your humble servants. Your children. Your family. Your bride. We are yours and you are ours. And that's all we need forever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen.